Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and on today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Coming up as Italians head to the polls, we're going to look at the runners and riders in Sunday's general election, and we're going to examine if, for the first time since World War II, Italy's next leader could come from the far right. I'll be talking to Hannah Roberts, who's political correspondent in Rome. And now there were obviously momentous scenes from London this week. Worldwide, it's estimated that four billion people tuned in to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. The country certainly mounted an extraordinary tribute to her life and her legacy. But can they now use that global soft power that they have to redeem their international reputation? We'll be talking to Will Hutton of The Observer and The Guardian about how the United Kingdom's place in the world will be in the new monarchy of King Charles III and under the leadership of Liz Truss. And finally, the price of big pharma companies took a huge nosedive this week as Joe Biden declared the end of the pandemic. It's certainly been a very lucrative number of years for those huge pharmaceutical companies. So Jamie Smith of the Financial Times is going to be joining me from New York to give us his overview of what has been an exceptionally profitable couple of years for the industry. As always, you can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, Italy is readying itself for a snap general election this Sunday. Here to explain how the election systems in Italy work and who the main parties and candidates are and hopefully what the likely outcome might be. I'm joined now by Hannah Roberts, who's from Politico in Rome. Hannah, thank you very much for joining us on Taking Stock today. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, these elections, Hannah, were originally set for next spring. Can you just give us a quick and brief history lesson of why they're happening now? Well, the government uh, collapsed unexpectedly in July. This was Mario Draghi's government, um, which was a largely technocratic government brought in to see Italy through the pandemic and get it on a a right economic recovery trajectory. But the parties had... uh, were looking towards the elections next spring already and had become, uh, begun arguing amongst themselves, campaigning um, while still in government, if you like. And these uh, disagreements came to a head in July with uh, uh, three of the parties voting against Draghi and bringing him down. Yeah, I mean, we're never short of political drama in Italian politics, that's for sure. But can you just talk us through who the main parties are in this election and who the key personalities we might be looking out for in in the election results? Sure. Bar a miracle, it looks like the right-wing coalition uh, are going to have a comfortable majority um, after the election. So um, that includes the far-right Brothers of Italy party, led by Giorgio Maloney, uh, who is a sort of uh, firebrand, former extreme right militant activist who has sort of moderated her image quite successfully in the last um, couple of years. And she has really uh, been um, even more successful than her partners by staying out of the, the draggy government, so by staying in opposition mm. and being able to kind of snipe from the sidelines. Then with her in the coalition is good old Silvio Berlusconi, who 
uh, listeners will be familiar with. He's now 85. Could, uh, he's the um, closest to the centre of the right-wing party. So he uh, is hoping that he could uh, be the kingmaker and then um, be able to, in that way, stay relevant for the next five years, which should uh, be him to the ripe old age of 90. Wow. And their partner in the right-wing coalition is is uh, the, the League, the uh, kind of pro-business and uh, anti-immigration party, which was in power after the last election and uh, took a very hard line against immigration. So this is the combination of parties that are likely to uh, take power together um, after the vote. Yeah, and it's it's quite a sort of kaleidoscope of different interests, but all veering towards the right, as you say. Those The Brothers of Italy, though, um, they've got strong support themselves, despite their links to, to fascism. Um, and one of the things that struck me in looking at their campaign is um, they've sort of tempered their messaging considerably, haven't they? It, much like Marianne Le Pen in France. Do you think that they have, um, you know, kind of done that to the extent that that's what's broadening their appeal, that their message is diluted rather than more people are sort of going an extreme right um, direction? I think it's a combination of things. Firstly, as I was saying, the fact that they were the only ones to stay out of government. Um, and they've been in opposition for since they were founded for the last 10 years. So they can't be held accountable for any of the mistakes that all the other parties have made. Um, then the other part of their success is, as you say, this ability to successfully moderate their image. And Maloney has done this, especially since the war in Ukraine broke out, um, by advocating very, very strongly that Italy stick with the pro-NATO line. And she's definitely also softened her messaging about the EU, saying, you know, we don't want to leave the Eurozone, we don't want to leave the EU, all we want to do is promote Italy's national interests within uh, the, the European Union. And what about the other side of the equation? I know the opinion polls are str- point, pointing strongly to this coalition of the right, but who else is is on the left, say, the centre-left coalition, which is led by the Democratic Party? So the centre-left uh, Democratic Party is led by Enrico Letta, who is a former Prime Minister. He's a professor. He is extremely respected in Italy, but he has led an extremely lacklustre campaign. He's not a charismatic leader like probably all the leaders on the right. He is considered a safe pair of hands, um, but he's made a couple of mistakes in this campaign. The, the major, major mistake is not getting the left altogether. Mm. So he had managed to build an alliance with the populist anti-establishment five-star movement since becoming leader of the Democrats a year and a half ago. But that fell apart at the last minute when the government collapsed because uh, the five-star was seen as taking a, a softer line towards Russia. And what about the five-star movement now? Where do they fit in? How have they performed? The five-star were looking like they, their stars were rapidly fading at the moment when the government collapsed. As an anti-establishment party, they were really doing badly by being in government. Mm. The more they were in government in different coalitions over the last five years, the more compromises they had to make, which really uh, destroyed their their identity. It sent them into an identity crisis. So ever since the campaign started in July, they've actually been doing a bit better. And in the South, 
uh, in the last few days even, it seems like they, they might be staging a bit of a comeback. You see, the Five Star brought in a kind of um, welfare payment system in Italy for the unemployed, essentially, called the citizen's income, which is very popular in the South, which is much poorer than the North. And the right-wing parties have suggested that they might abolish this. So uh, the five-star campaign down in the South is very much focused on on protecting these welfare payments for uh, the around three million Italians who who receive this every month. Maybe and, uh, it, the five-star are really building on that, and uh, and they might surprise us. Yeah, maybe a bit too late though, and a bit uh, too regional to affect the the overall outcome. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Hannah Roberts, who is the political correspondent in Rome, and we're discussing the Italian elections, which are due to take place this week. Now, look, right across Europe, Hannah, everybody is worried about the energy costs and everyone is concerned about those. I presume that that featured large in the campaign. What are the other issues which have surfaced in this election campaign? Well, it's interesting because opinion polls suggest that what they are really interested in is this cost-of-living crisis and inflation. And yet the parties are still talking about old issues like immigration and the war on Ukraine, Mm. um, which analysts think that that people actually aren't so interested in anymore. But um, when when you're on the right, like Matteo Salvini and Giorgio Maloney, and you've built your whole popular appeal on immigration, that's kind of all you've got. One of the things I wanted to discuss as well was the configuration of the Italian election system because it's it's quite different to, to what a lot of us know. It has a combination, a funny combination of first past the post plus proportional representation. Can you just take us through how, how the elections actually happen? So um, two-thirds of the seats are um, allocated via the proportional representation system um, and one-third will be is allocated via the first-past-the-post system. Um, and so that would be what the UK used. And this is, is creating a lot of uncertainty about this election because um, it's only been used once before, but in that time, since that time, all the constituencies have been redrawn. So no one really knows what would be a safe seat and mm. what's not a safe seat. These elections are quite unpredictable. It's quite a precarious situation for a lot of the politicians, I'd imagine, going into this election. This system massively favours the right who manage to get themselves into an alliance before um, before starting their campaign. Uh, and so in each of these first-past-the-post constituencies, they just have a single candidate for all three major parties, whereas the vote is divided on the left between six or seven parties on the left. And that speaks to your earlier point, which was, you know, the failure of the left to kind of combine and present themselves as a coalition. That party, that 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 election system, though, by the sounds of it, favours uh, coalitions as opposed to individual parties, does it? It's, it certainly does. So it's been a catastrophic error on the part of the left to not get themselves together and get in some sort of alliance, because if you don't have that, you're doomed to fail. What's your prediction? Uh, do you concur with what the opinion polls are saying? Could Italy be about to see its first female uh, prime minister? And what will that mean for the country? Yes, I, I absolutely think that George Maloney will be the next prime minister. Forty um, percent of Italians, when the last polls were, were were taken, had not yet made up those minds. 
And historically in Italy, a lot of those voters end up voting for the party that's in the lead. So although uh, when the last polls were done, we saw Giorgio Maloney about 25% in the vote, there's a good chance she could get over 30%. Okay. And when, uh, Hannah, are we likely to see some shape of the new coalition? How long does that process take? That process generally takes at least a month. In the last election um, in 2018, it actually took over 100 days. But uh, this time, if, uh, if the, the parties are considering forming a coalition at all, already in an alliance, they already have agreed on a programme, the process could be a bit quicker. But uh, yeah, we, we're not likely to see a new government in place until the end of October. Sorry, final question then. What's likely to happen to Mario Draghi in all of this? Where do you see him popping up again or do you see him popping up again somewhere? Well, yeah, Mario Draghi at the moment remains the caretaker prime minister and will stay in place until the new government is sworn in. But there, there are a lot of people speculating that he could be a contender for the new secretary general of NATO, which is coming up. Uh, he's certainly been establishing himself as as probably the most pro-NATO leader that Italy's ever had, although he doesn't have the military experience, perhaps, defence background. Interesting times ahead, uh, Hannah. We're going to watch uh, the election results with interest and, and no doubt we'll be back to you again. That was Hannah Roberts, political correspondent in Rome. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure, thanks. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Big Pharma plunged this week as Joe Biden said the pandemic is over. Find out more after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, COVID-19 vaccines stocks plunged on Monday after President Joe Biden said, helpfully, that the pandemic is over. So we wanted to look back at what happened to the share prices this week, but also to take a wider look at what the pandemic has meant for the profits of Big Pharma. I'm joined now by Jamie Smith. Jamie is the US pharmaceutical correspondent of the Financial Times. He's based in New York and he covers pharma and biotech. And he also looks at drug discovery and and healthcare issues. Jamie, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on Taking Stock. Hello, Mandy. I'm glad to be here. Now, shares of Moderna, BioNTech and Novavax all fell this week. Just take us through, Jamie, what happened on Monday at that trading session. Yeah, that's right. So what we had on Monday was um, the share prices of the three big mRNA vaccine makers, uh, Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, fell by about $10 billion. And the reason they fell was that uh, President Joe Biden made a statement um, that the pandemic was over. So investors basically are concerned that if the pandemic is over, it's going to lead to a, a big decline in vaccine sales. So over the last two years since the pandemic started, the, you know, the three main mRNA vaccine providers have really made a fortune. So in the first year of the pandemic, they sold $55 billion worth of COVID vaccines. And this year, they're expected to sell about the same amount. So that's really bolstered their profits, you know, pushed them through the roof. And, you know, the the two uh, biotech companies, BioNTech and Moderna, you know, they've had an incredible um, run because they didn't, they didn't even have a single uh, product on the market until COVID struck. And they were able to develop these vaccines at record pace. And they've had annual revenues 
touching almost $20 billion from almost nothing. So investors are now concerned that this gravy train may be coming to an end because if um, the pandemic is over, you would expect that people will stop uh, getting vaccines and getting booster shots. You know, it's going to boost public apathy and mm. um, towards getting vaccinated, particularly in the United States. There's already a lot of public apathy towards getting vaccinated against COVID. Mm. It has one of the lowest rates of vaccination boosting of all developed countries. Yeah. So, so just before we get stuck into the, the economics of all of it, um, let's look at the political side of it. Is Joe Biden's job to protect public health? You know, so when he says the pandemic is over, it's only last July that they still said in the US that there was a public health emergency. So there's still a big legacy there in the US that they're trying to deal with. On the, on the one hand, he's saying it's over. On the other hand, they're saying and seeking $22 billion from Congress to continue responding to COVID. I saw the number of Americans who are dying from corona-related viruses and illnesses is still around 400 a day, which is a terrible legacy of the pandemic. So what is the kind of health position? Is it over? Did he jump the gun on saying that? Um, or is he trying to sort of bring them to a point where everybody's thinking the pandemic's over? I think there's a huge disconnect with what President Biden said, declaring the pandemic was over. And yet on the other side, his health team within the White House are pushing to get $22 billion mm. in crisis funds to tackle COVID through Congress. You know, President Biden's comments were very political because we've got the midterm elections coming up here in November. And one of President Biden's main campaign pledges during his election was that he was going to beat COVID and he could do a much better job than former President Trump. So there's a lot of politics coming into play here in the US. Mm. And that that idea that the pandemic is over, you know, he's trying to garner public support, you know, coming up to these elections. If you look on the ground, and um, certainly infections are running at a reasonably low rate in the US. Deaths have fallen considerably and hospitalizations have fallen. However, there are still 400 Americans dying every day from COVID. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the virus is still here and it still poses a real threat. You know, we could have new variants emerging, just as we had with the Omicron variant, which caused havoc at the start of the year. Um, and even if we don't have a new variant, you know, whenever people start to move indoors during the autumn, as the winter uh, approaches, you know, that's when these respiratory viruses like coronaviruses tend to spread. So I think it's premature to mm. say that the pandemic is over. And a lot of the epidemiologists here in the US have been quite critical of that statement because they're very concerned that this could increase public apathy. It could also mean it's much more difficult to get the $22 billion in funding from uh, Congress. And um, they fear that without that money, the US will be ill-prepared for another rise in COVID or indeed another variant or even, you know, some other type of pandemic. Mm. So against that backdrop, you'd have to assume that these investors are looking at these vaccines and saying that the, the demand for COVID vaccines could continue for, for years to come. So why the exodus and the, you know, the, the huge shift on Monday? Was it just purely about Biden's comments or did they not factor in the politics of it? Or is it about more? Is it about the uptake of new COVID vaccines or boosters? I think it was probably a bit of both in terms, you know, it was a bit of a moment when the president of the U.S. says the pandemic's <laughs> over. Yeah. It's going to influence 
the public and their attitude to getting vaccinations. But also we are having the rollout of the new boosters, these bivalent boosters, which target the most widely cir circulating uh, subvariant of the virus US. And there are some concerns that the rollout is not going as well as anticipated. So Moderna seems to have had some sort of issues in terms of distributing this jab. And uh, there are some shortages in, in pharmacies. And um, the amount of people uh, lining up to get jabs in their arms, well, it doesn't look to be particularly strong. We haven't got full data yet, but we're expecting that next week. Mm. And I think this combination of, you know, the idea that public apathy could grow because people feel the pandemic's coming to an end and the fact that even this new generation of boosters maybe aren't going to be um, received as warmly as, as the vaccine makers had hoped. I think that's contributed to investors' concerns. Also, when you look at the nature of the three companies that have produced these mRNA jabs, uh, BioNTech and Moderna, for example, have no other products approved that they are actually able to sell to the public. So their whole revenue streams are based on the COVID vaccination and the COVID boosters at the minute. So if demand for those products falls, it's gonna be a number of years before mm. they can actually get a different type of product into the market, get it approved and start generating revenues. Pfizer is a little bit different. Pfizer actually has quite a wide portfolio of medicines, but it faces challenges from some of its medicines going off patent. And also if, um, you know, it loses the revenues from uh, COVID jabs, you know, it's under a lot of pressure to maintain the huge growth it's seen in sales over the last couple of years. And that's going to be a, a stiff challenge. So all these companies are rushing out and trying to run clinical trials in a wide range of different diseases in an effort to get new products on the market to try and fill that revenue gap that they expect to see. It's been a really extraordinary trajectory, hasn't it? Particularly for those three mRNA companies. They've become household names in such a short space of time. They Their product has been bought by governments and taxpayers all over the world. So, Jamie, I just wanted to ask you, like, obviously you've been covering pharma for a long time. Pharmaceuticals are a huge part of the Irish economy now. Is there any Irish interest here? Did we benefit in any way from all of this? Or are there any bases here from any of those companies? Certainly Pfizer would have um, operations in Ireland. So if Pfizer does well, Ireland would do well. Uh, beyond tech and Moderna, I'm actually not aware of any significant manufacturing operations or R&D functions that they've got in Ireland. I don't think they have. But certainly, even uh, during the pandemic, what we've seen is, you know, a lot of money flowing into the health sector and health stocks. And that has helped to bolster that sector. And um, I think, you know, because Ireland has, you know, something like eight or nine of the top 10 pharma companies based there uh, with operations, you know, that does benefit the country immensely. So I think what we what we may see, you know, is that times may get a little bit more challenging mm. for um, for the health sector, because in the US, what you've got is you've got uh, recently uh, Congress passed uh, drug pricing legislation, and it's really quite a, a, a land you know a landmark moment for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, both parties have been trying to pass drug pricing legislation for decades, haven't actually managed to do it. 
this time they've actually done it and analysts predict it could take you know up to a hundred billion dollars or more of, of annual revenues off pharmaceutical companies so I think there could be more challenging times ahead and of course that might uh, blow back to some degree back on the Irish economy. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Jamie Smith from the Financial Times about the profits in the pharmaceutical sector during uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, Jamie, I just wanted to broaden this out a little bit. I know you're you're here to talk about the pharmaceutical industry in general, but what's your assessment of where Joe Biden and the Democrats are in terms of the midterm elections now? We know that it's always theirs to lose once they're in government. What's your assessment of, of how things are shaping up? Well, I think six months ago, everybody thought, you know, the Democrats were in serious trouble in both the Senate and the House elections, you know, coming up to the midterms. We had really rampant inflation, you know, which was damaging the economy. And there were a few, you know, Joe Biden hadn't actually managed to pass a lot of legislation. So there were real concerns. But then a couple of things have happened to maybe change the equation to some degree. So uh, as I think I've mentioned, you know, this Inflation Reduction Act, which included Mm. the the elements to reduce uh, drug prices, that was passed, and that was quite a quite a wide sort of uh, amount of legislation. I mean, Biden's actually now passed more legislation than a lot of previous presidents have managed to do, even though the congressional politics is quite difficult. So that is seen as uh, a success. But probably more importantly, what's happened is you've had the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. on the abortion issue, and that has certainly galvanised uh, a lot of American women to get out and campaign. And I think it's motivated Democrats to a large degree, while at the same time, maybe confusing Republicans and and maybe hitting hitting their, you know, what was an upward surge for them. So that is an element which people don't quite know yet just how important it's going to be. But if it does motivate a lot of female voters to get out and vote Democrat, then it could end up with uh, the Democrats doing better than expected. So one one of the uh, I'm speaking to a, one of one sort of political analyst the other day, and he was saying that he expected that the Senate could well stay Democrat wow. you know, with uh, with with a, a narrow majority, but that the House would likely move towards the Republicans. There's various reasons for that. You know, actually, there's very few seats up for grab in the House, uh, and there's. Uh, you know, a little bit of gerrymandering of, of boundaries here over the last few years from both parties, which means there's less seats up for grabs. And just the way the dynamics work, his belief was that the Republicans would probably carry the, the House narrowly. But even securing the Senate would be quite an achievement in in um, in the landscape that he found himself in a couple of months ago. Um, Jamie, we're very lucky to have uh, the support of a number of American administrations, but Joe Biden has been particularly supportive of our cause, hasn't he? I don't think there's been as pro-Ireland president in the US for a very long time. You know, the dynamics here are that uh, the White House and the administration is very open to Irish ideas and certainly every time he gets the chance, he seems to mention and his officials mention the Northern Irish Protocol and supporting the Irish and the European position in that, which I think would be a big disappointment for you know British diplomats and the British government who would be hoping that their special relationship with the US could carry weight. But it doesn't seem to be doing that. 
Well, Jamie, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and for your insights into all of that. That was Jamie Smith from the Financial Times in New York. Jamie, thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up after the break, can the UK remain united and globally important without its Queen? You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, this week, the UK held its first state funeral since 1965, which was, of course, for Winston Churchill. For anyone who witnessed it, it was truly a remarkable public spectacle, um, a very powerful symbolic recognition of the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. So the country now has a new king and a new prime minister. So today we wanted to look at the broader picture of the UK and how it might leverage the soft power that it has as it enters a new era of its monarchy and its government. And who else could I be joined by but Will (laughs) Hutton, who's here to talk to us about where the union lies now. Will Hutton is is a political economist, a respected commentator and columnist for the Observer and Guardian newspaper. Will, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to join you. Now, Will, the pageantry, the ceremony, the UK does this type of stuff really well. I have to admit, you know, we were a bit bemused by it here in Ireland. We totally understand about the great regard that Queen Elizabeth II was held uh, in the UK. And indeed, there's a lot of affection for her here. But Can you just tell us what you think the last couple of weeks says about the relationship between the people of the UK and its monarchy in 2022? Well, um, it was a spectacle. 23 million people uh, watched it on on television. Um, The peak moment at midday when the coffin was taken from Westminster Abbey, well, from from Westminster Hall into Westminster Abbey. And uh, I don't know whether this figure is right, whether it's been validated by anybody, but... um, the, there's a figure of four billion um, for how many people may have glanced it uh, worldwide on the day. So this was an extraordinary moment. I mean, and I think um, uh, first and foremost, I think um, Queen Elizabeth II, seventy-year reign, and uh, it wasn't just about duty and it wasn't just about service uh, or about keeping her mouth shut and no one knew her opinions on almost anything. Um, it was also the few opinions that she did express were ones which um, are kind of universal, um, interdependence, uh, friendship. Um, uh, she really approved of the European Court of Human Rights, for example. Um, she believed in the Commonwealth because it was a group of uh, nations that voluntarily came together. And those values, you know, um, were kind of ones that are universally held and admired. Um, and so a lot of what was going on in Britain and mm. going on elsewhere in the world, actually, I mean, I've just come back from France, where actually um, the French government um, put this extraordinary video up, you may have seen it, in which the Queen had um, uh, was seen shaking hands with or toasting um, Anglo-French friendship with every French president since 1953. Mm. And then it finished up by saying, thank you, your majesty. Um, And so that was going on in Britain. I mean, that was going on. It would hardly be surprising if it wasn't. Um, The next thing was that she died in Balmoral. Um, I have a feeling that she knew she was Mm. dying and she decided she wanted to die in in Scotland, which she loved. Mm. And also she thought it'd be good for the union to lie in state in Edinburgh and Holyrood, which she did. Um, and then, um, interestingly, you know, Prince William, who's now um, the Prince of Wales, um, he succeeded in giving an address to the Welsh Synod 
in Welsh. And, you know, um, and it was very interesting that Sinn Féin, when Charles III, as he was, came to uh, Northern Ireland, you know, did not rebuff the monarchy. So, you know, you have the sense that actually um, the monarchy, perhaps more than any other institution in the UK, actually gets it that, you know, it is not just England, but the Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and they have proud traditions, and you better respect them. Mm. And I thought, I thought the royal family pulled that off well, the Queen in death, and actually Charles and Prince William in life. Um, and you, uh, I mean, the last thing to say, and I think it's important to say this, is that the funeral itself was, I mean, although wonderful pageant, um, very military, uh, and very, it accented the religion and the military um and actually um contemporary britain is not very militaristic um very few people serve in the army or the armed services these days and it's not very religious either and so you know i think a lot of um english scottish welsh and northern ireland northern irish watchers of this may have felt the same as you in the republic that actually it was a pretty rum spectacle um and there was no there was no reference to any of the queen's great charities um that she was patron of or her other interests you know mm. it was all military it was more it was all religious so the sense of being slightly bemused by it mm. uh, as well as wanting to try and honor her you mentioned there her physical presence and how important that was to her and how much she used it i think that is an important part of what held the presence of the monarchy in the Commonwealth um, and in those independent countries which have self-government everywhere from Australia to Jamaica. The empire exists symbolically in the form of the monarchy, but not politically. Do you think that that is in question now? Do you think that remains tenable for the monarchy in this modern world? I'll be surprised if in 30 or 50 years' time, um, the uh, um, that Charles the Third's successor will still be able to claim uh, kind of titular head of the Commonwealth. Mm. I mean, I'd be quite surprised if it holds. Um, it may do. I mean, there's an affinity between the English-speaking peoples, and actually, I would include the Republic of Ireland in that. There's a huge affinity between the UK and the Republic of Ireland, and actually, people remember um, the Queen. Was it for that state dinner? Kind of saying a few words of. Irish, Irish. Yeah, a big moment, you know, yeah. a language that the English banned, mm. and then she she repudiates it by speaking Irish. I mean, come on, um, she was brilliant at that. Mm. I mean, and she was where she was brilliant in France, she was brilliant in Ireland, she was brilliant in Jamaica, she was brilliant in Australia. Where wasn't she brilliant at it? And actually, people felt, in a sense, that actually some of that kind of charisma and the kind of value set she stood for kind of wasn't one they wanted to declare independence from. Now, can Charles III mm. um, pull that off? Um, he might. Well, that's, he might. We'll, we'll, he might. We'll, we'll I mean, to, I think I, I we'll, think one has to say, I, but one can't be say, he hasn't got his mother's charisma. No. It was interesting, wasn't it, that he said his first state visit was going to be to France. Uh, and actually, he speaks French. Mm. He's very Francophile. And he wanted to send a signal to the French people that whatever Liz, Pr Liz Truss might have said, he was in no doubt that France was a friend of Britain. Mm. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and she sort of changed her position in relation to France and is sort of thinking about joining that that um, alliance that, that Macron has, has suggested. More of that anon. Um, but 
you mentioned there the transition that, that is obviously happening now from the Queen to King Charles III, but that transition is happening against the backdrop of a very disjointed UK itself. So if you just look at your favourite politician, Boris Johnson, and now Liz Truss. They've, they've actually, another favourite. Another, another favourite of, of yours. They've built their politics on promoting nationalism. And yet, uh, you could say that the UK has never been more divided. At least at least two significant parts of it have had long held desires for independence. Do you think that the centre will hold, uh, in your view, and where are the push points that we can look out for in Scotland and Northern Ireland in particular? Well, I think um, what you're watching, and uh, uh, particularly tomorrow when Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Charts Exchequer, uh, were on Friday, uh, when he stands up in the House of Commons to deliver his fiscal event, is a kind of last desperate throw of the libertarian Thatcherite dice. I mean, tax cuts, um, getting the housing market going, mm. being tough on the... Uh, on benefits for the uh, marginally unemployed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, will it work? Um, it's a huge gamble. Um, if it works, um, then that sets in train, you know, one political and economic course, um, and we can, and which I think will be not good for the union. Mm. Um, if it doesn't work, and actually we do get. Um, uh, a Labour-led government in the next general election in 2024 or last, you know, the first two weeks of January 2025, the last legal date it could be held, then I think you could get something different happening. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, Britain needs to reawaken a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. It needs to kind of have great projects around which it can coalesce. It needs to, uh, and there's a kind of ache I think, um, in the British, uh, they want to be part of you know, serious combating of net zero, a serious, a serious attempt to level up, a serious attempt mm. to diminish inequality, a serious attempt to build great companies, a serious attempt to exploit our soft power, um, rather than kind of throw it all away in kind of gesture politics, which you're kind of almost antagonistic to fellow Europeans and poke them in the eye for the sake of poking them in the eye. Mm. Okay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Will Hutton from The Observer and Guardian newspaper. I was reading one of the pieces you wrote uh, recently. You're particularly critical of the government's economic policy, as you alluded to there. But one of the things you've compared it to is an economic fairground ride run by fairies and fools. You're particularly <laughs> scathing. I know it's a great one. You're particularly scathing in relation to their energy policy. But in fairness, what is so wrong about their approach? They're trying to help people stave off big energy bills. What is so offensive to you and what Liz Truss is doing there? Well, I think if you're going to have an energy policy, I think it has to be sustainable over two, three, four, five years. Because I, you know, who knows how high, how long gas prices are going to stay this high. And this is, this is so generous and it's not, and there's no attempt to kind of get compensating sources of revenue by levying windfall taxes. But I think that's one measure mm. by which you must judge an energy policy. Secondly, another measure which you must judge an energy policy is that there will be physical shortages of energy. And actually, the British have not made any attempt to build up kind of gas reserves. Um, the only, uh, and in fact, we use, we, use, I mean, we, we use actually our capacity to pipe gas into the European Union uh, in the summer and then draw it down mm. um, in the winter as our source of gas reserves. And yet, you know, with that's 
unreliable if you don't have any kind of relationship with the European Union of kind of reasonable friendship. Um, thirdly, I think it's vastly expensive. I think it would be much better for it to be targeted on those who really have trouble with their bills. I mean, you are giving a, an enormous amounts of money um, to people um, in large houses, um, maybe living by themselves or where their families left home, um, and much less proportionately to poorer households. Of mm. course, the, the first kind of households are those who are conservative. So, you know, I mean, all in all, of course, we should have, we should attempt this policy. But actually, you know, you want to secure supply, you want to make it fair, you want to make it sustainable. And on those three tests, in my view, it didn't pass, it mm. doesn't pass. Well, uh, another thing that we spoke about the last time you were here, and it was coincidentally the day that Boris Johnson resigned, was, you know, the capacity for uh, the government to try and reinvent itself, to kind of go out into the world in a much better way. And this week, uh, you also uh, said on Twitter that you felt that the UK could use this soft power that we saw all week uh in relation to the remembrance of Queen Elizabeth II, that they should use this type of soft power to good effect. Do you think that Liz Truss is making a good start with her contribution to the UN and her outreach to the US government this week? How is she faring in your eyes? Well, look, I mean, I first of all, I'm thinking I must be careful about my tweets. They're in Ireland, you know. <laughs> soft power is about the capacity um, to make people want to come inside your tent, your network, um, because they want to associate with your values, your charisma, and actually the relationships and connections you can make. Now, I mean, uh, in the old days, you know, um, Britain could reasonably say that it was at the center of, um, as Churchill used to say, three concentric circles mm. of power, Europe, Empire and Commonwealth, um, and and its relationship with the United States. Uh, you know, all three are in trouble, aren't they? Mm. Um, all three are in trouble. We've exited the European Union. Biden has made it very clear that he thinks the trickle-down economics that trust champions is nonsense. Never worked. He's sick and tired of it, he says in, a, in, a, in his tweet. And uh, the Commonwealth is kind of form but not content. I mean, it's got no, it's got no muscularity. So, you know, if you want to make, so, you know, if you want to use the soft power, the legacy of actually um, this extraordinary kind of fortnight. Um, you can start saying, you know, things that make we want to associate you with you. I mean, Liz Truss should say, how important the European Convention on Human Rights is. She should say, how important our relationship with the United States of America is. Uh, we may differ on economic policy, but we are shoulder to shoulder with you guys. And if you think that the um, Northern Ireland Protocol and the Good Fight Agreement is important, so do we. And we will stretch every single muscle in our bodies to make that work. Um, uh, and so on. But I mean, soft power requires that you kind of speak the language mm. of soft power to achieve your political ends. And I, you know, if, if you are, I think the last 48 hours, I don't think Truss has succeeded in doing that. I think she's, you know, she, her audience is a domestic one. Her audience is the right wing of the Tory party and the four newspapers that support her. And, you know, the, the 250 constituency associations that delivered her uh, a leadership of the Tory party, all the rest of it is kind of on the margins and not front of picture for her. Mm. And newspapers and the media, they're still a very powerful influence, aren't they, in British politics? Maybe in a way that they're not in any other country. But I think this 
whether it's a nascent acceptance that the UK's place on the world stage is diminished and now it's about keeping itself together rather than conquering others. That's sort of lost, I think, a lot in the media in the UK. They're they're a bit myopic in that sense. Do you, do you agree? You read, I mean, you read, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I, mean, I read some of the columnists in the um, Writer Centre newspapers. Uh, um, I mean, it's breathtaking, actually. I mean, they, you know, they really believe that... Um, you know, King Charles and Prince and uh, Liz Truss as Prime Minister will, you know, inspect a 200-strong naval fleet at Spitz Head uh, and still controls, you know, a quarter of the world's surface. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's an amazing, um, and I myself have endlessly tried to figure out where this comes from and why you can't see that actually relationships with other countries, if you're a medium-sized power, require you to build coalitions, require you to, uh, you know, get the art of compromise. Uh, it needs to persuade other powers to get to yes with you. I mean, this idea that, you know, Britain's so strong that it mm. can kind of face down other countries. Uh, but it's a mindset mm. which um, I think maybe, I think we may be at the last throw of the dice. I think the next two years may see this, you know, um, if trust succeeds with economic policies, um, then, you know, I doubt you'll be asking me back on the program, but I don't think she's going to. And I think that that failure will lead to a, 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 the emergence of a, of a different kind of right in Britain, political right in Britain. And actually, I think the, the soft left and their allies um, will try and have a reset of the country. But it's it really, I mean, I, you know, Events, uh, week is a long day, a, a long time mm. in politics, I and mean, who is to say how events will, will, will fit? But that's my call. My call is you are witnessing the last hurrah of um, a certain kind of politics in Britain. Um, I very much hope so. <laughs> OK, well, if she does succeed, well, I can assure you we'll, we'll need you back on the programme even more. <laughs> but for now, thank you so much again for your insights. Uh, that was Will Hutton of The Observer and The Guardian. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Thank you for joining us today. And while we broadcast at this time on a Sunday morning, we're also available as a podcast first on a Friday morning on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us as always at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy, Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and a review of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.